Hi, I'm Susan Smitten, and you're listening to Raven Debriefs. This is a show about how ecology, the law, and Indigenous justice intersect. Today we're talking to Nikki Iolo. She has been a wilderness guide and an environmental educator in the New Chalmuth territory of Clauquit Sound for over 10 years. Nikki is currently overseeing the first ever Indigenous Storyteller Edition with TELUS StoryHive, a project to provide funding and mentorship for emerging Indigenous filmmakers in BC and Alberta. All of this while she pursues a PhD with a research focus on emerging visual media technology as it relates to Indigenous ontology. Before COVID-19 hit, Iolo played a key role in the occupation of the BC Legislature as part of nationwide solidarity actions in support of Wet'suwet'en land and water protectors. We caught up with Nikki on the day that the book, Spirits of the Coast, was released. Iolo worked with diverse contributors, young and old, to explore the magic, myths, and ecology of orca whales, resulting in a gorgeous literary and artistic collection that honors and celebrates orca culture. We will save our waters, save them for our great-granddaughters, save them for our great-granddaughters' sons. Throughout the episode, you'll hear orca songs from the southern resident whale families and music by Ishka Peppermoth and Kinney Star. Nikki is in conversation with Raven's communication director, Andrea Palferman. This is Raven Debriefs. Subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Nikki Sanchez. I am an indigenous media maker, a frontline activist, and a, a doctoral student at the University of Victoria. And I had the privilege of being the editor of Spirits of the Coast, an anthology of the Southern Resident Orcas. And today is the official release day of the book. Oh, that's wonderful. I know. It's very, it's very exciting. Congratulations. I saw a picture of Jess holding it up, up in Bella Bella. Yeah. Oh, I am just so proud to have such an incredible diversity of voices represented. Um, certainly Jess Housey, who is Celtic and um, has committed her life and work to land-based uh, cultural revitalization in her community. Her um, contribution, I think, is profoundly moving and exquisite. And I have never, um, I've never been able to read it, even though I've gone through it dozens of times without crying, because it's just so profoundly true and so deeply based on a Celtic understanding of inter interrelatedness and reciprocity between human beings and the land bases which sustain us but those really beautiful kind of uh, deep deep tears like yeah it's like tears of beauty mm. 
Um, I'm also really excited about the contribution of Eric Mezampaka, who is uh, a Kenyan refugee to Canada um, with Rwandan heritage as well, who did an unbelievable art piece um, that represents his interpretation of, of an orca, but from a, a kind of African ontological worldview. Um, of course, Bryony Penn, like in her very specific and unique way, brings to life the story of Luna with humor and uh, Alexandra Morton's uh, contribution uh, and Paul Spong as well to have these scientists, pretty much all of the scientists who contributed, spoke from their hearts. Tell me how it came to be that you thought this was a medium that would get the, the message out there. Yeah, so I, I mean, as much as I've been working specifically in Indigenous media and like frontline um, grassroots organizing in the last uh, five to seven years, I have a background in environmental uh, science as well as about a decade of guiding experience working with orcas, grey whales, humpbacks, um, and every other coastal species. So I was contacted by the museum publisher uh, a year and a half ago um, to apply as, as the editor for this compilation. And the reason that they decided uh, to publish this book is because the museum, the Victoria Museum, the Royal BC Museum has created this an unbelievable in-house orca exhibition that really focuses on the Southern resident population and incorporates things like holograms and audio um, so that the people who participate in the exhibition can actually have a very uh, sensational and auditory experience of what it would actually be like to be an orca in a pod. Um, and that, that was where uh, the desire for the book came through, was just to have a companion uh, to the exhibition. But ultimately, this book really stands alone um, because of the diversity of contributors, the use of art as a very specific tool to communicate relationships, uh, reciprocity, and ontology. Uh, and then we also have some really incredible photography as well. So that is how the book first came to be. And it was really beautiful for me to be able to kind of marry my experience working on this coast as a naturalist and wilderness guide, as well as being an academic, and then also having a lot of experience um, in, in every form of media. And when you describe this book, you talk about it as an anthology, uh, meaning that characters came together from all over, we'll call it orca territory, to share <laughs> their contributions. Can you tell me about some of those incredible people who told their stories? Yeah, one of the things I feel so much pride about um, in regards to this work is that we brought together such a diversity of voices um, from age, expertise, uh, cultural background and so that includes everyone from Paul Spong who now runs um, the Salmon Lab to Alexandra Morton who's done incredible work um, both with salmon and whale research on the coast to people like Raylene Jules and Jesse Housty who are emerging um, cultural leaders and activists uh, as well as people like Bill Bissett who is a very funky psychedelic a poet Margaret Atwood refers to him as her spirit animal. So you spent a lot of time out on the water looking for and hanging out with orcas. 
are they communicating in, in artistic ways? I mean, they, they sing to us, they sing to one another. Yeah, I mean, that was something, that was one of the reasons why it was so essential for me that art be a focal point of this book is because the ways in which orcas communicate so far expand beyond um, linguistic knowledge. The amount of gray matter that orcas have in their brains is like a numerous exponentially more than what humans have. And so their ability to communicate is on a sentient level. They, and so for that reason, I thought it was so important that we went beyond just articulating ideas about orcas um, and actually really utilizing a multitude of perspectives to explore human and orca relationships. And as I wrote in the introduction, this book is really about our experience as human beings with orca relationships. And the other part of the story is really just only orcas could tell that story because that's their story to tell. So this is really just a reflection of what it has meant for us as human beings to engage with our neighbors, the Southern resident orcas. And the art spills over into activism. The orcas were such a huge character within the whole Embridge struggle and also now the struggle to stop TMS. Yes, because if we sign on to these projects, we're absolutely consenting to the elimination of the Southern Resident Orca pod, right? Like that is a concession um, that we're making in relationship to these pipelines. You and I met when we worked on a project um, called Orca Soundings, we made these puppets and we carried them up Burnaby Mountain <laughs> in progress yes. of the Trans Mountain Project. Can you describe what it was like to be part of that pod and maybe a little bit about how art as activism has threaded through your work? In the introduction of the book, I, I actually talk about Orca Soundings coming together and as well as the adventures I had along Beaver Point um, with Bryony Penn experimenting with both broom, Scottish broom, and uh, gorse as potential materials uh, to construct our orcas with. And I, I really feel as though, you know, the way in which we came together as orca sounding was something that definitely put into motion my involvement with this project. People really have an intimate sense of their connection with orca whales. And so when we came together as Orca Sounding, we spent a day talking about all kinds of things. And ultimately, our conclusion was that we wanted to engage people through inspiration, through connection, and through love, rather than through fear and urgency and all of those things. And so we decided that art would be the methodology to do so. I, I think in general, just because of the world that we're currently living in and the many, uh, ecological challenges that we need to be innovative and creative about solving. We need to find ways to sustain our spirits and to sustain our energy and actually revitalize ourselves through this work because it takes a lot from us and it's going to be a long process. And so both Orca Soundings as well as this book, Spirits of the Coast, really um, attempt to do that. They attempt to kindle our love, kindle our imagination, kindle our sense of connection 
as a tool to carry us forward to find innovative solutions for sustainability, both for orcas and for ourselves. Who will save our waters? Save them for our great granddaughters. Save them for our great granddaughters' sons. Tell me who will save our waters? Save them for our great granddaughters. Save them before all is dead and done. Hey, hey. This is Raven Debriefs. Subscribe, and we'd love if you would leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So your work also leads you to uh, high, high and low-tech places, you know, making orchids <laughs> on one, one end of that spectrum. And on another end is, you know, working with TELUS and StoryHive and really indigenizing that offering. So my work with StoryHive was actually internally uh, educating and decolonizing the StoryHive structure and programming itself, and then designing and guiding um, the first ever Indigenous Storyteller edition, um, which allocated o about a million dollars to 30 Indigenous filmmakers um, to make their content. What I was focused on was really um, trailblazing space to ensure that Indigenous creators could make their own content in their own way, with their own voice, without having to uh, make concessions in regards to a production company um, that didn't necessarily understand their worldview or the way in which they wanted to communicate their stories. Why was that so necessary? So I, um, my first big media project was working um, on the Viceland series Rise. And um, in, that, in that time, I um, was living in Toronto, working in the Vice office, and um, attempting to make this what was initially an incredibly beautiful um, project, which was about Indigenous resurgence around the world, told by Indigenous people, um, with Indigenous people. Um, and so that was myself and Jared Martineau who developed and created that project and then brought it uh, into fruition with Vice. But the amount of racism ignorance and kind of cultural violence that we had to endure on a daily basis in order to tell those stories and uh, the extent to which we had to run interference to protect those communities from being harmed through the process of telling their stories was so devastating that when I finished uh, working on that project I, I kind of promised myself I would never again work for uh, a non-Indigenous company or a non-Indigenous producer. And so to have the opportunity to work with TELUS to guide them, uh, to allocate the funds, to give Indigenous filmmakers the agency to tell their own stories in their own way was exactly what I felt is most needed in the media landscape in Canada. So if you have, if you're working for a production company and you have executive producers and, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of corporate structure, it's always going to be giving you notes and redesigning your your concept and what we're seeing um i mean in so many assets of our society is that a colonial worldview and an indigenous paradigm have many places that they they cannot see eye to eye and so 
when Indigenous people are trying to communicate their worldview because the majority of non-Indigenous people actually don't understand it, there, there are so many times in which those um, messages are censored and minimized. And that's really, um, that's really why I believe very strongly that Indigenous people need to be able to make their own content with, with complete freedom. Uh, and, and in order to do that, they need to be able to access the resources uh, and the funding to make, make that content. And the final project hopefully will be the thing that can translate those ideas and that can help people transcend their worldview to come to understand an, an Indigenous worldview, but trying to do that under the direction of an executive producer who cannot understand what it is you're trying to say is incredibly um, challenging. Those sometimes conflicting and sometimes just at odds worldviews play out in really violent ways in the world today, as we, as we yeah. experience with the Wet'suwet'en uprising. Yeah. So what, what are you trying to do with Decolonize Together? Decolonize Together is a consultancy that I started with um, two uh, other incredible Indigenous women, Siku Alulu and Carol Bilson. Um, and it's a consultancy that works with everyone from TELUS um, to the David Suzuki Foundation to big communications companies to different wilderness resorts, um, where we really work internally with those companies to help them look at their internal structure, look at the ways in which um, colonize, colonized ideologies and white supremacy is um, making their program offerings inaccessible or hostile for Indigenous people, and then helping them to create programming that is truly decolonized and accessible for engaging Indigenous people. Because it's one thing, and I mean, we've seen this a lot with the kind of reconciliation mandate that has been put forward by both Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. It's one thing to talk about reconciliation, but you can't just say that you're gonna enact reconciliation and then have a structure like the Canadian federal government or the RCMP that is inherently built on racism and subjugation of indigenous people and the theft of land and expect that suddenly everything is gonna be okay and relations are gonna be respectful. There's a lot of unlearning um, that needs to be done in order for those uh, those spaces to become truly equitable. And so with Decolonize Together, what we do is we uh, do decolonial workshops, and then we also do uh, deep auditing and um, program design for different types of companies so that they can actually enact meaningful reconciliation um, rather than just, you know, put the gloss uh, of that language forward without actually making any deep structural shift. You were a huge part of the organizing force behind the occupation of the legislature that took place in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en land and water protectors. One of the biggest statements that came out was that reconciliation is dead. <laughs> yes, reconciliation is dead. The thing about reconciliation is that it's always been um, a farce because you can't reconcile uh, violence that's been enacted when you're still enacting that violence. It's as though you have an abusive partner that you're living with who's continuing to physically assault you and and you want to go to counseling and reconcile 
uh, the harm that's been done, but you're going to continue to commit that physical abuse. And so with the CGL pipeline and with um, the Trans Mountain pipeline and everything that we're seeing, all the land theft that continues, all the cultural genocide that continues, the over 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women that number continues to rise, we can't reconcile anything until those harms have stopped and until that the healing has taken place. We're so far away from a place of legitimate reconciliation. We haven't even begun to talk about the truth. I think we're about 50 years out um, if we committed ourselves to actually stopping the, stopping the assault and stopping the harm um, and, and starting to talk about truth and re-education now maybe in 50 years we could begin to enact reconciliation. This week, an historic memorandum of understanding was signed between hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en Nation and the Government of Canada. The MOU lays out a framework for recognizing Aboriginal title to 22,000 hectares of Wet'suwet'en land. The negotiations which produced the agreement came as a result of years of work on the part of land defenders in Wet'suwet'en territory, culminating in solidarity actions across the country that stopped rail transport, shut down ports, and saw an Indigenous occupation of the B.C. legislature. Our guest today on Raven Debriefs, Nikki Iolo shares her story of her involvement in that struggle. I've been very active in a frontline capacity for the majority of my life. I think it's more that this was one that ultimately galvanized the attention of the Canadian media and so was actually visible. And so, as most people know, you know, a year prior to CGL reenacting its attempts to construct across the Poden territory, they did this exact same thing, brought snipers in, brought canine units in, brought paramilitary units into Poden territory to people who were doing nothing but carrying out the way of life that they have uh, since time immemorial. And the, the Guardian article that broke just a few months ago that actually contained the RCMC transcripts that documented the RCMP condoning the use of lethal, lethal force for against people on their own territories, I think was the wake-up call that was needed for Canada to really understand the extent to which the genocide of Indigenous people on their own territories continues. We talk about Oka, we talk about Gustafson, we talk about all these historical acts that are so shameful in our Canadian history, and we look at them and kind of shake our heads as though, you know, what a backwards time that was. However, this exact same thing is taking place on Wet'suwet'en territory. You also stepped in in a really powerful mentorship role. A lot of those folks who were on the legislature steps are brilliant young people. Can you tell me some stories of some of the flowerings that you saw there? So absolutely, I got to do um, some kind of media training and mentorship around co communications with the youth. But the folks who showed up and, and really threw down at the legislature, everything uh, that they brought to the table just came from their spirit and their knowledge and their cultural teachings. And I think that that's why it was so successful and so powerful. And just to say as well, the majority of the people who came together to sleep on those concrete steps um, for 17 days and nights in February 
most of them didn't know each other prior. We built a family and we built a community uh, in an emergent way day after day and everything that we carried out just came from uh, our consensus-based decision-making in relation to what we were being faced with uh, in regards to the RCMP and attempts at removal. And what most people don't understand is that almost all of the young folks who were there sleeping on the steps of the legislature are law students or master's students or government employees. They're highly educated and they know their history and they know the history of Canadian uh, treaty processes and understand that ultimately Canada isn't even going to uphold its own commitments. I mean, I was happy to hear you say 50 years. I thought, well, okay, 50 years. That's an optimistic <laughs> estimate, but especially like I think Raven understands that even when we do everything right, the outcomes are still not equitable. So what I wish more Canadians understood is that politicians and corporations have inserted themselves into banned politics and it's decades and decades of saying no. Ultimately, usually before a, a community agrees. And when you're speaking specifically about CGL, communities were basically told they had no other choice. This pipeline was going through anyways. So they might as well, they might as well sign on so they'd at least have some say about which part of their territory is destroyed. And they were also made to sign um, non-disclosure agreements that, compel that basically means they are legally obligated to not be able to say a single thing in regards to this pipeline and are actually compelled to go into the public arena and support in support of it vocally. So the level of corruption that is being enacted in regards to these uh, projects first of all, reveals that we're living in an entirely petro state. And second of all, the tactics that are being enacted are actually mafia tactics um, in regards to the elimination of basic human rights that these communities have in regards to the outcomes of what their the future of their land and culture is going to look like. One of the legal challenges that the Wet'suwet'en have crafted that is a possible way to push back against Coastal Gas Link is looking at the failure to implement the recommendations of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission report that yes. talks about the impacts of man camps on Indigenous communities. What it can speak to is the fact that Una Stoughton, which has been in existence for over a decade and has received millions of dollars in funding as a healing centre, Unasotan exists at the very end of the paved highway of tears. So the significance of that space being in existence to bring back Indigenous culture, to interrupt the, the violence that, um, you know, is notorious around the highway of tears, being a very significant site that so many young Indigenous women have been taken um, and subject to violence and never returned and never found. CGL had four alternative options in which they could have put their pipeline through. However, they were committed to the one that went directly through Unistotin. And that is a very clear articulation of a complete disregard for Indigenous sovereignty, Indigenous well-being, and Indigenous healing. The Unistotin healing camp is this very significant space um, where colonization ends and Indigenous sovereignty begins. 
do you have any comment about the overall kind of picture of man camps operating in Wet'suwet'en territory, the impact of that, and whether that's something we should be okay with as, as citizens of this country? One of the outcomes of the um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry has has been very clearly the impact of man camps on, on Indigenous women and missing and murdered women. And so the fact that just as you said, the Canadian government, again, is breaching its own recommendations and breaching its own orders to once again bring man camps into a very vulnerable area and potentially expose more Indigenous women to violence, not to mention they're doing so within the time of a pandemic when the rest of the country is on a lockdown and they're bringing untested and unquarantined men in the hundreds out to these remote locations, exposing them to the most vulnerable um, community, really goes to show how little regard there is for Indigenous life from the Canadian government or these corporations. And them just go splitting the land. Split the land for bitch a man lay. Carve up and spit her back in poison. And faster than them rivers can run. Leaks bring up the tailings, come undone. The grandfathers watch the young ones die. Oh, well, water catches flame. Water's catching flame. Water's catching flame. My own. It's discouraging to be a settler in this country and to hear that the way forward that's being sold to us under the guise of the reconciliation industry is really not it. What, aside from the personal work of decolonizing, can we do as, as contributors to, beneficiaries of these institutions that just don't seem to be getting it and don't seem to be willing to share or give up or rearrange power? especially in this moment more than ever, we're being shown um, on a global level that we don't have an option regarding how we choose to move forward. Our planet is now instructing us um, that absolutely everything about the way we've been running our global economy and culture is not sustainable. And whether we decide to change it or whether we're forced to um, because of pandemics, wildfires, environmental catastrophes, we, we do no longer, we don't have the autonomy or the agency to decide what the way forward looks like. Right now it's about adaptation in response to what our earth is telling us. Hey, we will save our waters, save them for our great granddaughters, save them before all is dead and done. Hey, hey. Ultimately, one of the most encouraging things that, uh, that I experienced um, with the legislature occupation was the fact that hundreds of settler people came out um, to spend the night on cold, rainy February nights, sleeping just on a bed mat and sleeping bags on the concrete to be in solidarity. That thousands of people came out the day of the throne speech to shut down the legislature 
what really, really lifted my heart and gave me hope was the fact that eight years ago when Idle No More was happening, I stood on those exact same sets and the numbers were a fraction of that. And the majority of the people who came out were Indigenous folks. Whereas now I believe that settler Canadians are really coming to understand the harms that they've been complicit with and are actually willing to stand up and do something about it. And so that needs to continue to happen. We can do our personal work to decolonize and understand our personal locations, identities, trajectories, and accountabilities. But we also need to show up with our feet on the ground to physically interrupt the harm that continues to be carried out to Indigenous people on their homelands. You inspire so many people in the work that you do. And Nikki, who inspires you? I think it's really important to always look up and always look down and remember um, that we're part of a legacy and we're part of a lineage. And so I look to women like LaDonna Brave Bull Allard and Pua Case, LaDonna who started Sacred Stone Camp at um, Standing Rock and Pua Case who has been leading the protection of Mauna Kea um, on the Big Island in Hawaii. And I also look at the next generation that's coming up um, beside me to people like C.M. Hamilton and Takaya Blaney who are absolutely coming from a place of deep cultural groundedness and are unapologetically demanding their birthright and demanding that the future going forward does not look like the violence that it has, has been uh, maintained through the past. And so I'm incredibly inspired when I look in both directions um, and have a lot of hope. And I mean, I have to say that that is primarily Indigenous women and two-spirited people who are leading those movements with so much conviction and so much heart and so much courage. Um, and so I draw like just an immense amount of humility and inspiration um, when, I, when I sit and listen and learn from those folks. We will save our waters, save them for our great-granddaughters, save them before all is dead and done. It's been incredible hearing your teachings as you carry them, but also as you live them every day. So on behalf of the Raven community, really grateful for your guidance and direction for, for each and every one of us. Thank you so much, Nikki. Likewise, Andrea, I really appreciate the good work that you do and I know I know the level of your both personal and, and professional commitment to this work and also really appreciate the ways in which Raven has shown up in solidarity with Indigenous communities. May it continue. I think that um, our occupation of the legislature is just the very beginning of what um, Indigenous frontline movements are going to look like in the generations to come. Well, we so look forward to the moment that we can organize again in the streets for real and start relaunching some more Stronghold concerts and gatherings. Absolutely. Feeling so triumphant, we're not upset. The unrest is a key to the success and success. Decompress, my life's blessed when blades press. My chest stretched, now expect the best from the Northwest. What's next? Just guess. In our own land, they try to treat us like we're just guests. All the usual suspects, rednecks, guys with greed for green who like to have. Trying to divide the world up into transects. You can frack off, back off, 
It's not just another roadblock standoff. It's all the man's fault. Women, put your hands up. That's enough. Time to put it to a damn stop. Can't call the cops. They got black ops. Damn stop. Damn stop. Redskins, Indians, and Black Hawks here to stay until the last drop of water or blood. It's a labor of love to stay in favor above. We might be labeled some chugs to stay in true to where we grew up. We will save our waters, save them for our great granddaughters, save them for our great granddaughters. This is Raven Debriefs. I'm Susan Smitten, and thank you so much for listening. You can find out more about the two legal challenges that Raven is backing at our website, raventrust.com. Raven Debriefs was recorded and produced by Andrea Palfreman with editing assistance by Rutendo Chabiqua. Subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Let our waters go